This is the Trey Blocker Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. Today's special guest is State Representative James Tallarico from Round Rock, Texas, just up the street from Austin. He currently sits on the Juvenile Justice and Family Issues Committee and on the Public Education Committee. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, we are about 30 days into the 140-day mm -hmm. legislative session here in Texas. Nobody's counting. No, nobody's <laughs> counting. It's not like there's a countdown clock on the wall. Right, right exactly. Uh, you are a freshman legislator. Yes, sir. First term. So give me your first impressions on, yeah. what, on what you've seen so far. Yeah, and, and I don't have anything to really um, compare this to, but I know that the tone has been about civility and pragmatism and consensus which is really exciting for me because those are some of the values that I ran on in my campaign. Right. Um, and in terms of policy, you know, all the conversation uh, is about the issue I care most about, which is public education, in particular school finance. Um, so I feel in a lot of ways, again, this is only the first 30 days that I've come here at the exact right time. Um, and so I'm hoping that will last. I know things will get a little more contentious as we move down the road, sure. but um, I'm hoping we can keep our eye on the prize. and. Um, focus on the students of Texas. The mood is very positive right now. Yeah. It's so great, certainly more positive than, than I've seen in years. I've yeah. been doing this for a while. No, that's so great. It's great. Um, since you are uh, a freshman, anybody yeah. played any practical jokes on you yet? Nobody has played uh, practical jokes. The guys in the parking garage gave me uh, a little bit of grief on my first day saying, I looked more like an intern than a legislator, but um, <laughs> well, I think that's there, a compliment. I think shoot, most people would want to yeah, so, Absolutely. Um, and no, and there is it. a reason for that. You know, we were sure. we were at dinner last week yes, with sir. Comptroller Glenn Hager, that's right. and I believe the Comptroller was talking about <laughs> Dukes of Hazard or something, right. and you made the quip that I wouldn't know I wasn't born then. That's Which true. That's brought, true. Brought up I, a discussion about your age. How old are you? Uh, Twenty-nine. Okay. Um, so certainly not the youngest ever. Of course, we've had Ben Barnes and my mentor Patrick Rose, um, as well as our own speaker, um, right. who were elected in their twenties. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but but I am the youngest currently serving, um, and one of the only millennials uh, in the building. So there's um, certainly an obligation I feel to represent my generation right. at the decision-making table. Right. Um, and millennials in particular uh, have so much at stake in the conversations we have in this building, yet we're woefully underrepresented right. um, in, in both chambers. Right. Um, so whether it's the economy and jobs, uh, whether it's uh, higher education, uh, whether it's the environment, those are things that we're gonna be dealing with long after most people in the building are gone. So it's super important to have uh, young people uh, in the building and to be representing um, their generation at the table. Right. So millennial caucus of one. Exactly. Well, well who's you know, the I, second youngest? Uh, you know, I think it might be Briscoe Kane. That's probably right. Um, I think Briscoe is, is, is a millennial. I don't know if he identifies as a millennial. <laughs> He's certainly on the upper end. Uh, right. But uh, What is um, the cutoff? I, think, I don't even yeah, know because I'm not near that. No, category. it's something in the early 80s, I think, is the cutoff for millennial, okay. if I'm not mistaken. But, All right. Yeah, I'm kind of squarely in that camp. And you know, our, I think our generation shares some characteristics. Um, one, of course, we're one of the most diverse uh, generations. Because we grew up with social media, we're more connected, more mm -hmm. empathetic, more global in our thinking, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a, is a positive attribute. Right. Um, and we also, you know, uh, there's been a lot written about our generation being more oriented towards service. You know, we came of age uh, during 9-11 and the Great Recession, mm -hmm. the Iraq War, Hurricane Katrina. I mean, those are things that were kind of 
formed our thinking. You know, um, September 11th happened when I was in seventh grade, a very right. formative time. Right. Um, so, I, so you know, I think there's there's something to be said about millennials uh, going into public service and being really committed to to the idea of service more than partisanship or um, ideology. So right. hopefully it's a positive development for, I think so. for the building. I, I really do. And we'll so, limit the amount of selfies on the floor um, <laughs> whenever possible. So. Uh, tweeting, yeah, Instagram. Exactly. Hey, everybody tweets in the building. What is the go-to platform for you? Is it Instagram, Twitter, uh, It Facebook? depends on what for. You know, I feel like for political things, Twitter. Okay. Um, you know, for more personal things, Instagram. Mm -hmm. You know, I try not to follow um, celebrities or journalists or politicians on Instagram. I try to right. just keep it as like my personal friends. Right. Um, and then Twitter is, I feel like, where I interact most. But but you know, I, it's not just a millennial thing. I feel like like Todd Hunter is sure. one of the most active people on Twitter, um, and so. It spans all generations for sure. It really does. Yeah. It really does. So I want to talk about why you ran and the issues yeah. that you care about and what you hope yeah. to accomplish this session. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about you personally. Sure. I know you grew up, you were born and raised in Round Rock, yeah. Texas, product of public schools, That's raised right. by a single mother. Yeah. And I know you've talked a lot about how that has shaped you. So, yeah. so tell us about that. Yeah. So I was born to two parents who were unmarried, um, but neither of them had um, gone to college. Um, my birth father didn't uh, complete high school. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I was extraordinarily lucky to be, um, living in one of the best public school districts in the state, Round right. Rock ISD. Um, and so, you know, my mother and I lived in a little one bedroom apartment apartment and she worked, uh, overtime to provide for me and, and for herself, mm -hmm. um, and had, you know, ambitious dreams for what our family would become. You know, we eventually met my adoptive father, um, who had a college degree, and that was a game changer for us. Um, you know, he had a house and a, and a, and a good paying job and a college education, um, right. and that made all the difference in the world. Sure. And so getting a, public, getting a, a good public education, uh, K through 12 in Round Rock ISD, and then being able to go to a great public university like UT um, was, you know, changed my life trajectory. And so when I got to uh, the University of Texas, you know, there, that was right around the time that tuition costs were increasing because of tuition deregulation and, and you know, increasing higher education costs. Uh, and so, you know, my fellow students and I um, went up to, to the Capitol and tried to advocate for ourselves and for our families to keep higher education accessible and affordable right. to middle class and working class kids. Um, and so that was my first taste of legislative advocacy, you know, okay, knocking sure. on doors and, and going, going to each office and making our case. And I right. realized how really, you know, individual citizens could make an impact up here. And Absolutely. then I was hooked. Um, so. Well, and, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. They yeah. think it's inaccessible sure. and that legislators don't want to talk to them. And yeah. in my experience, has been those are the per people who have yeah. priority when they come through the door, I absolutely our constituents. Agree. I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, when I graduated UT, I wanted to stay in the movement for educational equity and, and opportunity. Uh, and so I joined uh, an organization called Teach for America, um, which recruits the national nonprofit that recruits um, undergraduates to teach in high need areas. And, and so I moved all my stuff down to San Antonio. Uh, I moved into a little apartment on the west side of the city, which is a, mm -hmm. a beautiful and historic Mexican-American neighborhood and also one of the poorest zip codes in the state. Right. And I taught a few blocks away from my apartment at Rhodes Middle School um, and uh, really fell in love with my students and my families and my fellow teachers and my community members. Um, and and knew that that this is the issue I wanted to focus on for the rest of my life. Sure. Um, and did that as a 
nonprofit leader and now as a legislator and a member of the public ed committee. Right. Um, so you, you eventually, after UT and teaching, at some mm -hmm. point you ended up at some... Um, some northeastern school. Sure. Uh, what's it called? Sure, Harvard University. Oh, yeah, Harvard. Right. You That's eventually right. ended up at Harvard. So, How did that happen? So I'll just say I had to fill out a questionnaire from the Taylor Press, which is um, an incredible local newspaper in the city of Taylor in my mm -hmm. district. Sure. Uh, and it's kind of a fun questionnaire. And one of them was, what is the worst piece of advice that you've ever received? And the worst piece of advice. Great question. The worst piece of advice was that you can wear cowboy boots in the snow, which is not true. Not the good at snow, all. The snow ruined my cowboy boots, <laughs> um, and it was on those like cobblestone streets in in Cambridge. It's not good for boots. Not but, to mention, um, it's a good way to bust your butt. That's exactly yeah. true. Um, so uh, yeah, I, and I had never lived outside of Texas. None of no member of my family had lived outside of Texas. Mm. So um, it was quite a cultural and. Meteorolo meteorological that's right <laughs> shift. that's exactly right. Um, so i'm so. curious you know because i went to undergrad in virginia yeah. um, and when i told my mother i want to go to virginia for undergrad she thought i had lost my mind yeah. and she's my mother she <laughs> sure. wants me to be next door yeah. forever yeah how did your parents react so my mother um wanted me to buy a um full body like snow <laughs> like snow suit right. uh, and right. it was called the himalayan um, it costs like five hundred dollars, um, and it was meant for like, you know, Antarctica. You know, yeah, right. Um, yeah. And, but she was very concerned that I would get caught in like a snowdrift, um, <laughs> a, a sudden snowdrift, and not be in like perish. So, right. um, yeah, she was concerned about that. Uh, she also that had to have been good for your dating life, right? Exactly. The Himalayan, right. yeah, is very form fitting. Um, and then you know that she like made sure I had like emergency packs of food in my apartment at all times. She gave me instructions that if if there was a, I don't, I guess she just didn't comprehend what a blizzard would be, would be, or what mm -hmm. it could do. But she wanted me to know that I could always break into the vending machine downstairs if I needed to. So <laughs> she had all these contingency plans to make sure that I didn't die in the snow. So, That's awesome. um, but I, and, you know, Boston, in fact, is um, similar to Texas and to Austin in a lot of ways. There's a lot of obviously a rich history, mm -hmm. um, a lot of pride. So. Right. Although it was different, there were a lot of similarities to Texas that I, I really enjoyed. Yeah, so. I love Boston. I'm sure that yeah. was a great. What, what was the program? Two, three years? So it was uh, on education policy, which is right. a part of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Okay. So I graduated in uh, 2014. Yeah. And, and so what was your goal after that? When you, when you were doing that, you said, here's what I want to do with this. Yeah. So, you know, my, when I left the classroom, um, I knew I wanted to help my students and students like them. On a, on a more systemic level because, mm -hmm. you know, I felt like I was a pretty good teacher, but I was only impacting 150 kids every year in room 112 at Rhodes Middle School. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted to somehow um, change policy and change systems to help students like mine. Uh, and so I was actually doing a, a project on educational technology and came across um, a group of people in Texas, back in Houston, who were really doing some innovative things around mathematics curriculum and educational software and blended learning and uh, called them up about the research project and that eventually led to a, a job interview and and uh, and working with them to open up um, a, a central texas office which got to um, work with students in san antonio where i used to teach okay. and also in round rock where i grew up so we actually worked with students in title one schools in round rock um, and we had so much success that we caught the attention of Governor Abbott, who came right. to tour our, our work at Robertson Elementary in Round Rock ISD. And, um, you know, that was those conversations 
eventually led um, to the creation of Math Innovation Zones, which is um, a program within TEA to help expand blended learning programs like the one we, we started in Robertson. So, right. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So tell me about that moment when you, maybe you're laying in bed, maybe you're having a yeah. cup of coffee and you said, I'm running for office. Well, I mean, really it starts with my predecessor, um, Chairman Larry Gonzalez, um, who uh, is, doesn't belong to my party, mm -hmm. um, but I think is, is going to be remembered as one of the most effective legislators um, in the building. Um, and uh, he decided that he was kind of ready to move on to other things, right. which I think is, is a mark of a good legislator, That's um, right. one who knows when to, when to hang it up um, and, uh, and is okay with not being an elected official mm -hmm. um, when your identity and your values are not tied up in that, that right. work. Um, and so he was able to, to walk away and start other things, but that left an open seat in my hometown and my home district. Uh, and I knew that there needed to be more educators involved in the Texas legislature. Uh, nothing against all my lawyer and banker and doctor friends, right. um, but you know, the most important thing we do up here is public education, and um, there aren't nearly enough practitioners um, and people who have real-world experience in the field of education sure. who help uh, you know, create policy here. So you know, I, I decided to, to explore running for the seat and um, got a lot of great feedback from educators in the community, and we launched our campaign in September of 2017, mm -hmm. so about a, uh, more than a year of campaigning, um, and it was a blast. And I, I, we, I was really fortunate to uh, run with um, a really uh, classy uh, Republican opponent. Uh, her name was Cynthia Flores, and right. we ran a really positive campaign based on issues, and we're always very respectful uh, of each other and our views. And so um, I think, I, I know a lot of districts would benefit from the same kind of Absolutely, same kind the of whole races. country would. That's right. Yeah, without uh, a doubt. So I was really proud of that campaign and very proud to run with her, and uh, I think she feels the same way. So um, it was a really productive election cycle for us. So you are a Democrat in what has historically been viewed as sure. a staunchly Republican sure. county in Williamson sure. County. How does that affect how you approach this job? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish every legislator had a district like mine. My district is fairly 50-50, mm -hmm. um, and that means that if I'm going to return here and keep working here, I've got to uh, you know, make sure that I bring Republicans along with me. Um, most people who work in the building um, only have to appeal to their party's primary base, whether right. it's Democrat uh, or Republican. And I don't think that's good for democracy because I think you're, the, the more broad base uh, your appeal has to be, the more, I think, pragmatic your policy will be. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate, I think, to represent a swing district because sure. I think it'll make me a better legislator. Um, and so, you know, I don't focus on divisive issues. Um, there are things that I, you know, that I, I'm a proud progressive and I stand on principle on certain topics. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, it's uh, things like school finance. It's things like property taxes that, and infrastructure where it's, there's not a red and a blue solution. Um, right. There's just a, a good common sense solution. So the, the, you know, we're sitting across the street from sure. the Capitol yeah. and the, the million dollar question is yeah. how do we improve pu public education? Yeah. How do we reform property taxes? And, and the yeah. two are, are of inextricably tied together. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, when I think about um, the discussion around school finance, I kind of think of three primary problems that I think need to be addressed. Um, so I'll start with I'll go from least complex to most complex. Okay. Um, and when I say least complex, obviously, school it's finance. It's still complex. There's no, there's no right. least complex. Um, but I would say the first is recapture. It's both 
easiest to understand from kind of a gut level as a as a as a citizen in this state, mm-hmm. um, and also I think probably the easiest to fix. So um, obviously, you know, you start with your uh, every school district in Texas kind of gets their uh, entitlement determined by the state of how much money they're supposed to supposed to get, and you start with the basic allotment, which I like to think about. There's a lot of metaphors that go around, but I I think about it as kind of a, a block of clay. And then based on district characteristics, you know, cost education index, uh, small and mid-size adjustments, uh, and student characteristics, your weights in the formula, you adjust that, you kind of sculpt that clay uh, into a pot, right? The first thing that goes in the pot, as you know, uh, is local property taxes. And then your state aid comes after that. And if you overflow your pot, that goes back to the state and recapture. I think the simplest solution uh, that's been discussed is to just increase the basic allotment. So increase the pot of clay or the the block of clay you start with, right? Right. Um, And so that way your pot at the local level or the state level. So or both. Well, I mean, so the basic allotment is determined by the state, right? Mm -hmm. So it'd be a state decision through. I mean, it can be done through the appropriations uh, appropriation act or uh, or statute. I think it should be done in statute, but. Uh, I think by increasing that that first block of clay, uh, that that basic allotment, you're going to have bigger pots um, for all districts across Texas equally, mm-hmm. uh, and that means you'll be able to keep more of your own revenue, and so you're less likely to overflow, and that means recapture will be reduced. Okay. Um, because I be- I believe in recapture as a concept. I do. <laughs> I know it's unpopular, but it's actually something Texas has been incredibly um, you know innovative across the country in having a system that's really done a, a fairly, even though there are enormous problems with its implementation, it's done an, enorm, an incredible job in, you know, r- keeping relative equity between school districts. Well, and, and that's the point. I think we all have to keep in mind what the ultimate objective is, right. and that is we have not only a legal obligation, right. but a moral obligation that's to right. provide equal yeah. education across the yeah. state, which yeah. is going to require right. some level of equal Listen, funding. I right? know, um, you know, recapture, um, and our, which leads to the second problem, um, which is the formula itself being outdated mm-hmm. you know we've we've the commission school finance commission has recommended eliminating the cei entirely which i think is probably a good idea CEI meaning so the cost of education index okay. right which hasn't speaking of dukes of hazard hasn't been updated since, <laughs> since i was born dukes right? of hazard. Yeah. um and and you know lbb legislative budget board is tasked by the legislature to update it uh regularly and they say it's so outdated they can't even really touch it because it does it's just it's just broken to such right. a deep degree um and you know, in- increasing our student weights for economically disadvantaged students and special mm. education and English language learners—that's, um, I think, you know, the, the second problem is those is the the inputs into the formula and adjusting those and updating those. And I think that's the second problem. Okay. So, but what I was going to tie back to recapture, both the student weights and recapture have made Texas an example for a long period of time in the world of school finance because we were one of the first to recognize how to create equity systematically across the state, a state that's big and complex like ours, and that, each, that we recognize that each student uh, requires different resources to educate. That's right. So it's good to celebrate successes. I know school finance people beat up on it, but sure. it's good to remember kind of the bones of this house um, are good. It just needs some renovation, but um, this, is a, this is a beautiful home. Right. Uh, we just got to update it. it. So, and then the last, and this is the most complex problem, which is how to improve outcomes for students. Mm-hmm. Um, those, the, the first two are kind of purely financial in a way. Right. Um, the, second pro- the, the, th- last, the third problem is more programmatic, more policy, and that's where we've, we've, the, the School Finance Commission has some interesting ideas, um, you know, talking about 
really putting an emphasis on third grade reading and early childhood, which I think is, is a good direction to go in, um, especially, you know, hopefully getting toward uh, full day universal pre-K. Mm -hmm. um, you know, increasing dual language, right, which right. is recognized as kind of the best, uh, best practice when it comes to our English language learners. And uh, increasing teacher pay and teacher compensation, which we can talk more about, but I think that's going to be a big point of um, disagreement. But the idea that we want to stop treating teachers as workers on an assembly line, that they're all the same, right. um, and that they, all, that they each have individual talents and value, <laughs> I think is something good for the field of education. So that it's, it's interesting that you said it that way. Last week, I had Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick on the show, and he suggested as a starting point, we need a $5,000 a year across the board pay raise for teachers, yeah. and then at least another additional 5,000 yeah. in merit pay to address what you just said, which is some are better than others. So sure. what do you so, think of that? So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm always for paying teachers and school, and school staff more. Um, absolutely. And, and, uh, but, you know, I think if you're one, you have to build it into the formula so the funding doesn't go away because this happened back in 09 mm -hmm. when we had some of the help from the uh, stimulus package at the federal level. Right. And we gave teachers a thousand dollar raise. It's a bonus. Yeah. And then, yeah, it didn't get funded. So, right. um, so it has to be built into the formula. But, but two, again, I don't understand how teaching is the only profession where it's okay to treat everyone the same. Um, I mean, your background is lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, what law firm pays all their lawyers the same or advances lawyers based purely on seniority, how long you've been there? Right. I mean, there's not a law, a law firm that does that, you right? You may start out the same level, but sure. it quickly changes. Right. And it's based on merit. It's based on achievement. It's based on contribution, right? Now, there's going to be a lot of discussion about how to judge that in teaching. Um, and I'm very concerned about using standardized test scores to do it or to you know, possibly make that as part of a larger portfolio. Mm. Um, in fact, we just heard testimony on the school finance, on the school, uh, on the public education committee, that the most predictive uh, indicator of quality teaching uh, is student evaluations. So it's students telling us directly who their best teachers are. <laughs> They're the ones who know the best and who have the least incentive to lie, right? I mean, you talk about politics in a school environment, um, you know, students are kind of our most objective barometer. Of Let that. me ask you about that, though, yeah. and, and I'm going to drill down on this a little bit. Sure. I mean, as a third grader, fourth grader, maybe yeah. I like the teacher who is nicest and gave us a little more at break time and yeah. maybe wasn't so hard. Yeah. Uh, but am I getting the yeah. best out of that teacher? Right. That's kind of your first reaction of what a student would do. Right. But the data suggests otherwise. Huh. And students naturally, children naturally want structure. Right. They may they may think they enjoy, um, right. you know, uh, kind of the blow off class or the blow off period. Um, but students and human beings yearn for structure and security. Um, and so they naturally want a teacher who's kind of a no nonsense, no, no nonsense nurturer, mm -hmm. you know, someone who is both firm, but, you know, communicates their their caring and their investment in students. Right. Um, and, and if you and I, I mean, if you look back on your on your school career, I doubt it's the blow-off classes that you remember fondly, right? Sure. Um, it's the, the teachers who made an impact on your life and who had a relationship with you. And students know that. Right. Um, and it's funny, I mean, you can, even before they can read and write, students have the ability to do an evaluation with a happy face, sad face, neutral face. You know, you can, you can form evaluations that are valid even for, for young students. So. so let's move to the other sticky issue, yeah. property taxes. Yeah. What do we do? Yeah, so I mean, this is, again, 
my opinion is that the, it's not my opinion, it's fact. The driver of property tax growth in most communities is your school district mm-hmm. and not your city. And so the idea that we would handcuff cities and counties um, uh, in kind of as retribution for, for growing property taxes um, seems to me like a solution in search of a problem. Um, you know, if we really want to address this issue, we have to look at the school district side. And the way to do that is through school finance and ensuring that we restore a balance uh, between, you know, local property taxes and state aid. Um, you know, I, I, I represent a fast-growing area. I grew up in, a, in this fast-growing area. And so, you know, our cities and our county um, would have real difficulty um, meeting the basic needs of our community if we implemented a 2.5% cap. Right. Um, and it's and it's and it's rich for the state to do this because we push so many obligations and services down to the county and the local level. Mm. Um, then to turn around and and put put these restraints on them um, seems uh, the height of hypocrisy in my mind. Well, and so what Governor Abbott has said is yes, we're going to put this 2.5% cap in there, but we're going to ban these unfunded mandates. Sure. I mean, they say that, right? Um, and I think you'll see a lot of skepticism at the county and the city level. Um, and in my mind, we already have uh, property tax caps, and those are called elections. Um, if you are dissatisfied with your, your local tax policy, your local tax rate, you have the ability to vote out any city council member, or any mayor, or any county commissioner you'd like. Yeah, but wouldn't you agree with me that part of the issue is rapidly increasing appraisal values, and that's not an elected position. Listen, I mean, so our appraisal districts are charged with kind of creating or, or um, you know, putting forth independent um, market-based property values for residential and commercial. And currently, they have to scrounge around to find as the best data they can. And right. often, oftentimes, it's kind of um, done in a, in a fog of confusion for most voters and most mm-hmm. uh, taxpayers. You know, something I'm interested in exploring is something that most states do, which is sales price disclosure. And now I know, you know, folks, you know, my realtor friends are going to be worried about that if it's public. But there are ways we could do it where that sales price is only disclosed to the appraisal district and not publicly, hmm. okay. um, which maybe can satisfy. Again, I'm a person who tries to find consensus. If the goal is just to make sure that our appraisal districts have the the information they need to make accurate appraisals across the board that are right. fair and that taxpayers can understand, then let's find a way to get them that information. Sure. We don't have to share it with everybody, but right, right now our, our appraisal, and Williamson County, by the way, our appraisal district kind of has set the standard um, as an appraisal district that does an incredible job um, at communicating with taxpayers. And so, and they've told me like, if we, if we had this, it'd make our jobs a lot easier. Right. And I think people would be less upset when they get their, their tax bill. That's so true. anyway, just an, an idea. So <laughs> it, it's become abundantly clear to me yes, that you are passionate about public education. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, so what's your number two issue? Yeah, I mean, so you know, public ed, we haven't even scratched service on all the things we care about right. um, in terms of public ed. But, you know, I'm, I'm also interested in uh, issues around mental health, um, mm-hmm. issues around criminal justice. Um, that's part of why I request to be on the Juvenile Justice and, uh, and, and Family Issues Committee. Um, but I think there's, uh, in a lot of ways, our criminal justice system is both inefficient, ineffective, and is undermining people's civil rights across the state. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're thinking about a lot of issues, um, and I know there are a lot that are being discussed currently in this session that we'd like to, to partner on. Right. And, and you know, one thing that's, that's become abundantly clear to me just in these first 30 days is how these issues are not 
in isolation. You know, we talk That's about true. healthcare and immigration and criminal justice and education and higher education, and they're all inextricably linked, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, I, uh, our public education can't be successful unless our students and our families are healthy at home. Right. They, you know, if our undocumented students are fearful of being deported, they can't be successful in school. Um, if there's not a pathway for them to succeed after high school, um, then you know, our, our economy will suffer, um, which of course leads to you know, uh, deficiencies in our tax system. So right. it's, it's, that's part of which I, I think what you learn pretty quickly here um, is how everything is related to everything else. It, you have to take a holistic approach. That's right. And, and we need to eliminate the pipelines into the criminal justice system. So that if, if you teed me up perfectly to talk about the first bill we filed, which oh, we good. filed um, yesterday, um, and of course it's an education-related bill, but it directly addresses the school-to-prison pipeline, mm. which I think, as you said, is one of the most um, critical issues we face as a right. state, and one that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, our, our bill, uh, HB 1467, uh, if anybody wants to look it up, uh, <laughs> creates a ratio in Texas public schools um, of mental health care professionals to law enforcement officials. So, you know, obviously we're all concerned about school safety and recent school shootings, and that concern in some ways has been channeled um, unproductively toward militarizing schools and toward uh, kind of leaning into a culture of violence um, and uh, adding more uh, law enforcement officials into campuses. And so our bill would mandate that for every uh, one law enforcement official a school district places into a school, you have to have four mental health care professionals, whether that's a counselor or a social worker or a clinical psychologist. Right. Um, the idea is that when students walk through the hallways of their school, they should see far more counselors than they do cops. Um, and that, that would be I'm good. sure you remember right. growing up in school that, uh, did you have a police officer in your school? I don't recall seeing one. Yeah, right. right? I mean, th- this, hasn't, this, this hasn't always been an issue. And I, I talked to law enforcement uh, officials in my community, and most of them don't w- want to do this work. They recognize mm-hmm. that you know, to, to, to be in a school requires an entirely different skill set. That's right. Um, just like they wouldn't, as a certified educator, they don't want me roaming the streets, <laughs> right, uh, in a cruiser, right? Right. Um, you don't want that, and I don't want you in my school doing sure. discipline. Now, sure. if a crime has been committed, a law has been broken, or right. there's an immediate danger to students, of course, we want our law enforcement officials to address it. But law enforcement officials shouldn't be conducting behavior interventions, right? Right. I mean, they shouldn't be counseling students. They're not trained to do that, nor should they. Right. They have a tough enough job on their own, That's and then right. we don't need to be adding to their plate. So this hopefully will create a balance between security and hardening, which has been proposed in some mm-hmm. of the um, proposed school safety plans, and what has been proven to be effective, which is creating a safe and healthy school climate. Um, right. Everybody from the Department of Education to the Secret Service who've studied this have said that's the best way to prevent school shootings is to have relationships with your students on campus, not to, not to create a moat around your campus. That's right. So, so you are clearly passionate about, it, about the state of Texas, and yeah. I'm glad you're in the legislature. Yeah. And, and I know it can be all-consuming, sure. so I have to ask you, what do you do for fun when you're not thinking about... I find the, this to be fun, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I mean, okay. you know, being, I mean... If, like you are, I mean, if you're a nerd about this stuff, to yeah. kind of be immersed in it and to be in the middle of the action, right. uh, it's such a privilege, um, and, it, and it brings so much excitement. If it didn't, I shouldn't be here. I agree, right? but for um, your, but for for your own mental so, health, so most you need an know, outlet. Most people who know me know that I'm a pretty big um, bookworm, um, and I have a, a library at home that I've cultivated and something I'm very proud of. Um, so I, I like to read fiction to unwind, so I try to stay away from... Um, you know, uh, books about mm, politics or right. policy, even though I'm interested in those things. But um, it's good to kind of 
uh, read fiction once in a while. So, What are you reading right now? So I just finished um, Fates and Furies, which is um, a, a book that was really, I think it was came out in 2014 or 15, um, but about kind of telling the story of a, a marriage from beginning to end. Um, I won't spoil the book, but it's beautifully written um, and, and captivating. So that's a great, I mean, it's a great way to kind of unplug. And, and I think reading not only for students, but for adults is a great way to build empathy as well sure. um, and kind of uh, see the world through another person's eyes, which right. I think we can all benefit from. Well, Representative Tallarico, yeah. welcome thank you. <laughs> uh, to, to the Capitol and thank you for serving. Thank you, sir. A- as you know, it's our tradition on the Trey Blocker Show to end each episode yeah. with some words of wisdom from our guests. Sometimes this is a Bible quote, sure. a, a, a song lyric from sure. your favorite musician, sure. or just whatever's on the top of your head. So yeah. what would you have to share with the audience? So today? I'll say just as a preface that, um, you know, my granddad was a Baptist preacher, my... I, Grew up at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church um, uh, up, in, up in Round Rock, and my mother was an elder. My dad was a deacon. I still attend the church today. And uh, it, so needless to say, I heard, I've heard my fair share of Bible verses and right. scripture readings right. throughout my life and, and have actually, for a, a Democrat, got um, some attention and some criticism for talking pretty openly about my faith on the campaign trail and how it shapes my worldview and shapes my politics. Um, and so we used a lot of different scripture readings, and so it was difficult for me to, uh, to choose one. But, and, and that changes, as you probably know, every, different sure. stages of your life. That's right. Um, but, you know, the one that I keep coming back to, especially in this time in our history, is uh, John fifteen seventeen, And this is toward the end of Jesus' life when he's talking to his disciples and I think trying to kind of get through to them exactly what, he's, um, what his life has been about and what it should mean to them and how it should inform our own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, this is my commandment, love each other. And it's, you know, I think when you take all the stories of the New Testament, you take um, Christ's life and, and try to uh, figure out its, its meaning and, and what it should mean for us, um, you know, a kind of radical universal love is, is uh, what it boils down to. And I think that's something that's needed in our capital, in the nation's capital, and in every community of this country. The Bible is the greatest love story. Yeah, right? that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, Representative, thank you for coming on the show. Thank Hopefully you. Hopefully we'll have you back again soon. I would love and to. Best of luck with the rest of the session. Thank you, sir. Thank I appreciate you, sir. it. And thank you all for watching The Trey Blocker Show. You can find us at treyblockershow.com, YouTube, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you, and God bless.